0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Starting today and running through February 10th, Film Forum at 209 West House in Street of Manhattan will present a series called New York City's Movie Renaissance 1945 1955. Two dozen films that were completely or partially filmed in New York City will be featured, including famous and lesser-known titled. The series offers many pleasures, including spotting actual city landmarks and locations. Joining us now are two guests who will be introducing movies during the series. Richard Kozarski, who is the author of Keep Him in the East, Kazan, Kubrick, and the Post-War New York Renaissance, which inspired the Film Forum series. And Susan Delson, the author of Soundies and the Changing Image of Black Americans on Screen, One Dime at a Time she'll present a special program on soundies. I'm very pleased to welcome Susan Delson and Richard Kazarski to our show now. Hello.
1: Hello. Now, Hi, weren't, Lord, good to see you. Now weren't on fil- the video.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, unfortunately, we can't do stuff in the studios anymore. Uh, at least not for the time being. Uh, weren't films shot in New York City as early as the late 19th century, but but not story films?
1: Well, all kinds of films, of course, were created in New York and New Jersey. That's where the industry was invented and and developed. After a while, certainly by the beginning of World War I, they decided to send the feature part of that industry, which was the glamorous big money, and out to the West Coast to a factory town. Everything else stayed in the East. Uh, Essentially the uh, economic headquarters, the administrative headquarters, and also the production of more marginal films the kind of films that don't make it into history books like newsreels documentaries training films sponsored films and also films that were addressed to marginal audiences race movies race movies and yiddish pictures especially
0: Mm. now there were films that were set in new york that were shot on new york style sets in in hollywood uh Uh, Did any of the films intended for African-American audiences break away from the niche audience and become better known?
1: The ones that were sent out on the race film circuit tended to stay in the race film circuit with the exception maybe of a few shorts like uh, Caldonio with uh, Louis Jordan. But these feature films... Were advertised separately. They were booked separately. They were they were made by separate separate companies, and that's the way that situation remained really uh, through the end of the nineteen forties.
0: What about the political dimension? How did then Mayor William, William O'Dwyer begin an organized campaign to lure theatrical film production back to New York City?
1: Well, this sort of snuck up on him. In fact, it, when he came in in nineteen forty six. Basically, he saw the, uh, the campaign to bring movies back to New York as LaGuardia's project. Hmm. You know, so why push that? But then the films were coming, and there was especially one movie called Carnegie Hall that was shot in the hall in 1946. It was a million-dollar budget movie. It had all of the big classical stars, Heifetz, Piotr Gorski, Rubinstein. O'Dwyer was there on the first day of shooting. And he liked it. You know, it was like throwing out the first ball uh, at Yankee Stadium. Uh, So he begins talking to his commerce department about making the ability to get permits street permits for shooting much easier before this if you were going to make a movie you had to get the same permit that a a, a carnival or a street fair would use mm-hmm. right uh, and you needed a different permit every day and five different sets of permits the water department electrical so say you know whatever so he said i'm going to make this simpler and they do make it simpler uh, and The following year, his friend Mark Hellinger, whom he knew in the 1930s, comes to New York, comes to New York to make uh, the Naked City. And this seems to develop a little bit of momentum on on its own. And politically, you could say, okay, uh, Mayor O'Dwyer was the one who was behind this, simplifying it. But there was one problem that he never licked, and that was the problem of municipal corruption. Uh, there was just too much graft going on, and it was no secret. I mean, Ben Hecht came to New York. He made a film uh, called Miracle in the Rain. And he said, I'm never going back there. You have to bribe everybody. All all the city employees, the police, they have their hands out. Ben Hecht was not the only person uh, to say that. And eventually, uh, you, this, this goes back basically onto O'Dwyer's desk, because O'Dwyer. Uh, He was in the swamp himself, I mean, he was forced out of office because of his reputed connections to Frank Costello. So he wasn't the person to clear that up. It was John Lindsay uh, who cleared that up. But that was
0: 1966 with the creation of the Office of Motion Pictures and Television. That's That's 10 years after the series ends.
1: Yes, that's right. It it is. And uh, until the mid-1960s, people made movies in New York... Despite these hmm. other problems, despite the fact that, yes, they were, cor- there was corruption and there were problems with unions, uh, despite the fact that there were no tax incentives, uh, there were no proper studios such as they have today. But people love to make films here. They wanted to make films because uh, there was an internal sort of you know, cultural tradition. It's just like the, the music tradition. There's mu- jazz music that's particular to New York that's different than the kind of jazz you find in Chicago or New Orleans. It's the same or thing. Or California
0: between- at that time.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what I'm writing about in this book is, is not the image of New York City, but how did it, you know an indigenous filmmaking population come to make feature films again? And what did they look like and why were they featured?
0: Now, Susan, didn't RKO have a studio on East 106th Street?
2: They might have, but they didn't make soundies. So they're kind of beyond the scope of uh, my purview.
0: They were using it mostly for newsreels and documentaries?
2: Richard, do you uh... that studio? Yeah,
1: that RKO decided they were planning for years to make a studio in New York. So they they got an old lodge hall on 106th Street and Park Avenue. And they said, we're going to make uh, short films and newsreels here. But by the time they're ready to open that studio, they get the idea of. Making, making feature pictures as well, and renting it out. So they rent it out to David O. Selznick, and that's where he makes most of Portrait of Jenny at the Pathé studio. They make one or two features themselves, like the window. And actually, I think a couple of race movies were made there. no, no soundies, a couple of race movies. And then Howard Hughes buys RKO and they sell the studio, you know, for television, for television production. Uh, And that was the one attempt by Hollywood studios to try to go back to the old days, to create a New York City type, a Hollywood type uh, situation in New York. And it didn't float because, of course, things were different. And it was New York who was going to show Hollywood how to make films now in the future. It wasn't Hollywood who was going to show New York. That was the wrong path.
0: Who selected the movies for this series?
1: I worked on this with Bruce Goldstein Bruce Goldstein did a remarkable uh search to find thirty five millimeter prints of films that I didn't even know existed in thirty five millimeter anymore some of some of these films uh they float around the bootleg mm-hmm. video market and you're lucky if you can find them but they uh, were
0: yeah many people had them for sixteen millimeter or I know I had a few. Uh, in my house when I was a kid. Uh, tonight at 640, you'll be introducing perhaps the best known film in the series, On the Waterfront from 1954. But why is On the Waterfront considered an example of New York filmmaking? Because wasn't it shot mostly in Hoboken?
1: Well, it's, it's again, this is not image of New York that I'm writing about. It's New York technical personnel. It's 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 done out of New York. And it's and especially anti-Hollywood film, all of the people involved in making that movie had rejected Hollywood or were thrown out of Hollywood, were blacklisted out of Hollywood, graylisted, or had left for some some other reasons. That's not only Elia uh, uh, I- Kazan, but Bud Schulberg, who had been working on the script of this project since 1949, uh, the producer Sam Spiegel, who took it on after... Daryl F. Zanuck, you know, finally threw in the towel and rejected it. Uh, the cameraman had never worked in Hollywood, Boris Kaufman. The editor, and most of these people won Academy Awards for their work. The editor, Gene Milford, he was a refugee, a political refugee from Hollywood. Uh, and Sam Marla Brando
0: and Eva Marie Saint won awards, didn't they? Academy Awards? And they're, And they're also New
1: York actors, hmm. New York actors, aren't they?
0: Now, uh, to what extent can we see this film as Ilya Kazan's answer to those who criticized him for naming communists in the film industry before the House Committee on, on American Activities in 1952?
1: It depends if you look to what Kazan said or to what Bud Schulberg said. Bud Schulberg is on this project since 1949. He's hired by an independent producer to try to make a script out of a Pulitzer Prize winning series of newspaper stories, right, called Crime on the Waterfront. And he's working on it and working on it. And it, his main source. from the New York Sun. And, it, uh, I think it's the, yeah, yeah, I think it's the Sun. And his main source of information was a, a famous waterfront priest, Father John Corridan, who was a kind of a Catholic worker, style agitator on the waterfront for justice and he's helping he's helping Schulberg and Schulberg gets very interested in the priest and as he develops the script the priest becomes the central character because Father Corden had told him well you know I tell these men to go out and and stand up for their rights and then the next morning the guy is floating in the river so how do I deal with this ethically and Schulberg says that's interesting I'm developing this character well time goes on time goes on like uh, he's working on it with the director robert Siodmak, uh, who had made the killers and they, they they're announcing they're going to film Siodmak is going to film on the docks with non-actors and, and all this and then in 1951 uh schulberg is uh, uh, named as a communist party member by HUAC. a huac a, a schulberg is outraged he said he goes goes down and testifies and he says I'm not a Communist Party member. I I left after that. What makes Sammy run fiasco? But I'll tell you who is a Communist Party member. So he names names a whole bunch of people. Mm. Uh, That does not help the project. Universal abandons the project. 1951, who else testifies? Kazan. Kazan testifies. He names names. Same thing happens to Kazan, where Kazan is like no longer people on the left are talking to him and people on the right don't want to talk to him either. So Kazan and Schulberg find themselves.
0: Well, right? it's also they- can be seen as as critical of unions. The focus is on union yeah. violence and corruption among longshoremen. Did any union leaders object to the film?
1: Oh, yes. And the union leaders objected to the film when when Sid Mac was first attached to it. I mean, they were saying uh, we'll approve. They told Dalozanek like, we'll approve the the script, but you have to make it known that the corrupt union leaders are communists. Hmm. And they said, "Well, we can't really do that. That that doesn't that doesn't actually work." When Kazan comes in, Kazan has a different level of influence. Kazan is influenced by the testimony of a longshoreman called Tony Mike Vincenzo, who testifies in '52, and he becomes a squealer. He turns on the people in the union and Kazan says "hmm I find that appealing so he and he he gets Schulberg to develop the script more along the lines of a story about a longshoreman who becomes a squealer who talks about his friends who, whom he now realizes are, are are not good guys but historically uh, although Kazan always said yes for me you know when uh uh Marlon Brando says, I'm glad what I've done. That's me. That's me channeling you know, the people who criticized me for testifying. But Schulberg says, look, I was working on this script for two years before either of us testified. It's not about testifying. It's about union corruption. It's about the priest. It's about all these other things. And the two of them never actually saw eye to eye on that issue. The film speaks for itself.
0: This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, my guests are Richard Kazarski and Susan Delson. We're talking about the Film Forum series called New York City's Movie Renaissance, 1945 to 1955, which will run from uh, today through uh, February 10th. And if you want to schedule, you can go to... Uh, Filmforum.org series slash NYC movie renaissance. Um, now, Susan, you're also uh, introducing uh, film. You'll be presenting a, a kind of a, a unique program called Soundies: America for a Dime at the Film Forum on February 10th at 650.
2: What's a soundy? Oh, a good question. Uh, Soundies were three-minute music films which were made to be shown outside of movie theaters on machines called movie jukeboxes. Mm -hmm. And these movie jukeboxes would show up wherever a music-only jukebox might be, mostly bars and taverns, but also restaurants, uh, bus stations, train stations, anywhere people might gather. Strictly speaking, Soundies... are a proprietary brand of jukebox movie that were made to be shown on a specific brand of movie jukebox called the Panoram. Mm. In 1940 and 41, there were dozens of movie jukebox startups, but Panoram Soundies was the only one that actually made it as a business. They lasted from 1940 to early 1947. Would you consider them precursors
0: of today's music videos?
2: Well, that's the way they're generally labeled, but to me, that's just that doesn't really say what they are. I think they're a lot more than that. They are these sort of time capsules of what it was like to be um, on the home front in World War II. There's just so much history that's just encapsulated in these films, and they're really fascinating for that reason, uh, because... They were they were primarily made for entertainment, for music, but they were also involved in boosting morale and reinforcing uh, patriotic ideals. There was a lot of messaging going on um, and some of it was contradictory. Soundies are full of contradictions, and that's one of the things that makes them so fascinating.
0: Well, doesn't your book, Soundies and the Changing Image of Black Americans on Screen, One Dime at a Time, focus on the role of black performers in this little-known genre? See, yes. It was an opportunity yes. for some pretty great performers who might not have gotten very little time on the, the, the new television services or whatever uh, to actually be seen.
2: Well, soundies really, and you know, were a few years ahead of actual. You know, when uh, television didn't really gain momentum until after the war, and soundies' heyday was really the, during the war and just a little bit after. And um,
0: many yes, shot in in the Bronx at the Edison
2: Studios. Many were shot in the Bronx at the Edison Studios, but one of the what's interesting about Soundies that is, even though they started out in Hollywood and quickly began production in New York, New York became the center for black cast Soundies production. Um, And in addition to the Bronx studio, there was um, a lot of activity, sort of pre-shooting activity took place uh, in Harlem. Uh, at a studio called um, Suntan Studios, which were run by uh, Fritz Pollard, the uh, football great who had at that point become an entertainment impresario. And he was a vital part of the whole structure that got so many black cast soundies in front of the camera.
0: So who are some of the artists featured in your upcoming program? Uh, I, I, I know Dorothy Dandridge, Duke Ellington, Nat King Cole are among them. Anybody else that uh, we definitely want to see?
2: Well, you know, what's so interesting about them? Uh, yes, definitely those. And, um, but there are some people who are less remembered or less well known, but also really part of uh, cultural history like Louis Jordan Mm -hmm. and um, Sister Rosetta Sarp, also Mm -hmm. known as the godmother of rock and roll. Um,
0: One of my favorite gospel singers.
2: Absolutely. And she she's amazing. But also people who are less well remembered, like June Richmond. She's Mm -hmm. wonderful. And There's uh, a boogie pianist in Harlem named Lynn Albritton. She did not record very much. Her soundies may be her best uh, documentation of her music and she's pretty fabulous. We have Fats Waller. Um, We actually have um, one soundie that records an act that was part of Duke Ellington's review, Jump for Joy. There is a lot in here. Wonderful stuff.
0: And the Library of Congress had a project to restore these short films.
2: The Library of Congress has been working to restore these short films. In addition to programming this program, I'm working with uh, Kino Lorber to develop a package of soundies, uh, a multi DVD disc package. And the Library of Congress is working with us on that.
0: Richard, during the period after World War II, film noir and crime pictures were particularly popular. Why was New York seen as the perfect physical backdrop for those types of movies?
1: It was only perfect for the noir films that were more street and documentary based. I mean, remember, post-war American cinema, it's it's pulled in two stylistic directions— there's this German influence, low key lighting, noir direction. And then there is the documentary influence. The let's, you know, you shoot on the street, film with elements of reality that have previously been smothered by Hollywood glamour. That you see that in this show, especially in the film House on 92nd Street. The house on 92nd Street It's made just before the end of World War II. It's made by the producer Louis de Rochemont. And Louis de Rochemont, he had he had created the March of Time newsreel. But the March of Time newsreel, it's not what we would think of as a newsreel. It had a lot of staged sequences. If they didn't have Huey Long or Haile Selassie on film doing some famous thing of theirs, they would just hire actors, build sets, and incorporate that in the newsreel. So you have these produced newsreels as a tradition going on over here. And de Rochemont says, I'm... I'm Leaving that short film business, I want to make features. And the first big feature he makes for Fox is this thing, House on Ninety Second Street, which is about how the FBI, uh, you know, unravels this this German spy ring. And DeRocher says, "Okay, the way you make a, a feature, the way you turn this previously, you know, ill-regarded." documentary influence into a, into a feature is by making it real for the audience you make it real by not having a lot of glamour in the photography by not having famous stars all over the place if i can use non-actors that's good but it if we need to do some regular acting, I'll just get some New York stage actors that people, you know, aren't familiar with uh, in Hollywood. And we won't have any of this razzle-dazzle uh, photography that the, that the Hollywood noirs, uh, you know, like uh, Double Indemnity or Out of the Past have. Um, but sometimes there were
0: other problems like weather, weather. Uh- One of the earliest movies in the series is Portrait of Jenny that stars Joseph Cotton and Jennifer Jones. And weren't weeks wasted waiting for the weather to change?
1: Yeah, well, they were badly advised. You see, I mean, David O. Selznick decided to rush into production on this film without a, a completed script. And he wasn't going to go to New York to supervise it. He always supervised his films personally. He didn't supervise this one. And that was that was the problem. They went off looking for a hurricane. You remember that film ends with this hurricane scene? Mm. Well, they went up to Massachusetts looking for the hurricane three months before hurricane season. So they're sitting up there for months waiting mm, for hurricane. Mm. Then they say, Okay, we're gonna go back and and you know, pick up again on some of those location shots we did before. But earlier, the location shots, the trees didn't have any leaves on them. And now suddenly the trees all have leaves on them. So the shots don't match. Uh-huh. So it was just it, it was a bad a question of bad production management.
0: When they shot them in Hollywood, what they did is they just would do a couple of they would shoot a little bit in New York and then just insert that footage into the film to, to make it look like it was all in New York.
1: Hey, so he still has a lot of this location footage it's central park central park is central to that movie uh they built all the sets inside this path a studio but Selstick would always tinker with films um, and he, he finally he called them back to hollywood and they reconstructed the sets they took the sets they reconstructed them back on the sound stages in, in hollywood and it's it's hard for anybody to tell actually which of the interiors are done on the new york sets and which of the are done on the new york sets moved uh, to the west coast um, to, to follow up on something you were saying earlier about these these two styles uh I look at a movie like naked city and mark hellinger comes back to new york and he says okay this is going to have to be very realistic and you know documentary quality and so he sends memos to uh jules Dassin while they're filming he says be careful don't give me any of this overly dramatic Ufa-style melodrama. And by Ufa-style, he's referring to the German UFA studios with, you know, low-key lighting and funny angles. He says, I want it to look like a documentary. Give me more long shots.
0: Well, Luigi, who had published a book of photographs of life in New York titled Naked City in 1945, was hired as a visual consultant on the film. Yes,
1: Uh, yes, he he was. They they said they hired him as a visual consultant and we know he hung around and took some still photos. But actually, I think that the photographic influence in that film came from their own cinematographer, William Daniels, mm -hmm. who was Eric von Stroheim's cameraman on Greed. He had shot Greed in San Francisco for Von Stroheim, so he knew how to film a location picture, even if he had become Greta Garbo's favorite cameraman.
0: Well, uh, it, it's a police procedural that tells the story of the murder of a beautiful young model on West 83rd Street based on an actual murder case that had been reported by the film's producer, Mark Hellinger.
1: Uh, yes, the, Hellinger covered this uh, this murder case. It had been sort of dug out of the police files in a long research trip uh, by one of the writers, Melvin Wald. They focused on this, this one. Uh, look, a police procedural... It's not a film noir. Film noir is about corruption. Film noir is about how you can never trust any uh, authorities. You can't trust the politicians, can't trust the detectives. In a police procedural like Naked City and House on 92nd Street, the authorities catch the bad guys and everything is fine with the world at the end.
0: Uh, uh, There were problems that... uh probably uh, stopped happening later, Uh, they had to uh, distract hecklers. And the film producers hired a juggler to entertain the crowds. Uh, But it was filmed pretty much completely on location on the streets of New York, wasn't it? Over 100 different locations, including the old Essex Street Market, the City Morgue, the (laughs) Roosevelt Hospital. and And the final showdown is on the Williamsburg Bridge.
1: Final showdown's on the Williamsburg Bridge? Uh, I was surprised to actually learn that many of the interiors were done on sets in Hollywood. So the police station where where Barry Fitzgerald sort of explains everything and there's a lot of dialogue. That's shot in a studio in Hollywood so they can film it, you know, with the kind of fourth wall perspective. The um, apartment in Queens, the home in Queens that Howard Duff lives in, that's an actual building. That they used in Queens, and Dessin complained. He said it was difficult with the sound. We couldn't get lights in there where I wanted them. You know, it's it's more trouble than it's than it's actually worth. So you see a lot of um, uh, Hollywood studio interiors, but you know, those are those are studio interiors. Now
0: in Bruce Goldstein, who, as you mentioned, is the repertory director at the film at Film Forum, uh, also had a personal connection with uh, with Jules Dessin but didn't he track down many of the locations for a short documentary called Uncovering the Naked City which will also be shown with, yes, uh, with ab- the film Yeah
1: absolutely it's a wonderful it's a wonderful documentary and it's amazing how much Bruce was able to pinpoint and it's not just a here's where it was in 1947 and here's where it is huh. today hmm. there's it's a lot smarter than that it's a very clever film
0: Was well, the film the inspiration for the television series of the same name because uh, yes. it used the film's famous concluding line: "There are eight million stories in the Naked City. This has been one of them."
1: Yes, yes, and of course, that is a famous New York City live television series. Most people think of New York City and television. They say, "Well, that was just the golden age of, of live TV." But this was a filmed TV show, uh, like sort of like Sergeant Bilko and other But Sergeant Bilko was all filmed, you know, inside studios. Naked City uh, was out on the streets.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah, we never been here before. Ah, what can happen to you in one day? What do you think you're going to do? New York, New York, a wonderful down. The rock's is up and the battery's down. The people ride in a hole in the ground. New York, New York. whose uh, book, Keep Them in the East, Kazan, Kubrick, and the Post-War New York Renaissance, published by Columbia University Press. And Susan Delson, whose book Soundies and the Changing Image of Black Americans on Screen, One Dime at a Time, is from Indiana University Press. They are both uh, involved in uh, the creation of a new uh, film forum series called New York City's Uh, movie renaissance 1945 to 1955 Um, and uh, I just played something from on the town Uh, now um, is that's the only musical in the series isn't it
1: yes it is Uh, other than boarding house blues (laughs) which is a race movie and almost all race movie features are musicals or they certainly include a lot of musical elements and by the time, you know, Desan comes to New York in 1947 to make a make a feature picture, they had already made 20 feature-length race movies in New York since the end of the war. It's the production of feature-length race movies that actually kick-started the post-war New York film industry again. It got uh, not so much the famous directors working, but technicians just on a lower-level notch. A cameraman, uh, set designers, electricians, sound men, makeup people, they they working on these race movies. They also will be working on films like The Window and Portrait of Jenny and even on The Waterfront. Now, one reason that race movies were able to, to hit the ground running when production restrictions were lifted after the war was because all of these soundies had been made here uh, mm-hmm. during the Second World War. And in fact, soundies were the only sort of nonfiction film production that flourished in New York during the war. And I I kind of wonder, maybe Susan has the answer to this. Why were the Soundies people able to get film stock, which was rationed and restricted, when other independent people were not during the Second World War?
2: Susan? Uh, That is a really good question. All I can say is that... um, You know, the corporation behind Soundies was uh, a a manufacturing uh, firm in Chicago, and uh, they were quite uh, committed to Soundies and uh, explored a lot of different avenues, I'm sure. I don't actually know how they secured the film stock, but uh, they were pretty intrepid in terms of Working uh, around restrictions, shall we say?
1: Someone, someone told me that it was because the uh, corporation was founded by James Roosevelt, the president's son. Well,
2: could that have anything to do with it? I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, The there were a few corporations involved, and James Roosevelt was involved in. The production company on the West Coast that initially was going to make all the soundies. Now, soundies were released eight films a week, um, every week. Wow. That adds up to 431 films a year.
0: And do we have As, all of them available now or have some of them been lost?
2: Uh I think some of them have been lost, but soundies have have been ever since they began. They have been beloved by collectors. And so there are many soundies uh, in circulation uh, And in fact, um, the soundies. You know, the Library of Congress has an enormous uh, collection of them, but other film archives have them, too, and private collectors. So they're fairly readily available. A lot of them are available online in sort of truncated versions. But the thing is that soundies were shot in 35 millimeter, but then distributed in 16 millimeters so they could be played on panorams. And it's these duplicated prints for the panorams that we mostly have and so some of them are not you know they're what um the technical word is dupy they're duplicated they're m- many times duplicated and so they're a little dark the soundtrack is a little muddy it's wonderful to come upon a soundy and good condition they're really out there in great numbers, but quality securing them in good quality is really uh, an achievement.
0: Now, since the soundy crews uh, had already uh, developed a lot of experience working uh, on locations in New York, were they the people who wound up being hired when uh, the studios started making uh, well r- regular films here?
2: Let, let me let me correct that. Um, soundies were not shot on location. Soundies were shot uh, largely in that old studio wow. in the Bronx. That is that is primarily they were studio uh, productions. They were rehearsed. You know, the black cast films were rehearsed in Harlem, but everything was shot uh, up in the Bronx. But they were the technical crews that were working and
1: available. Yes, uh, Don Malcames, the cameraman Don Malcames, did Soundies. And we're going to be able to show a couple of features that Don Malcames shot, uh, Jigsaw and So Young, So Bad, which were quite rare. And uh, Bruce has been able to get them, you know, copied from Malcames' personal 35 millimeter prints, because wow. those, those mm. films, like so many others, you know, previously not preserved. Uh, Susan, I wanted to... Wait, wait, wait. So, so,
0: so a number of the films that are in the series are films that have not been available for many
1: years? Oh, yes. Oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, sometimes, you know, they were floating around in 16-millimeter copies. I showed some 30 years ago at the Museum of the Moving Image in 16-millimeter copies. And then since then, it's it's the bootleg video market for half of them. So congratulations to Bruce to find them.
0: Well, he sure knows a lot about movies. <laughs> uh, but
1: uh, I had a, one question for Susan while, while I have the opportunity. Uh, you're, you're the expert on, on Dudley Murphy. And Dudley Murphy, I think, was one of the first directors of Soundies. Could you,
2: is that true? Could you say something about that? Yes, that is true. Dudley Murphy finished his Hollywood career. Uh, directing Soundies. He directed 10 Soundies uh, in late 1941 as the Soundies production was just getting underway, and half of those were with Black performers. Uh, Murphy himself was very interested in working with Black talent. He had uh, done the one movie that... um, singer Bessie Smith had uh, done. uh, And he also worked with Duke Ellington. He did Ellington's first sound movie. So he was very attuned to black performers and uh, he did do 10 uh, soundies. But uh, I have the feeling that he, when you look at his soundies, it's pretty clear that he was more ambitious than the form and the budgets could actually handle. Uh, He was well-versed in short filmmaking and in making films that were uh, structured around music. That's the way he got his start, because remember, he was uh, the first filmmaker to begin production on Ballet Mechanique. Uh, And he worked on Ballet Mechanique through several changes of collaborators, um, including Man Ray. And Ezra Pound, uh, as well as Fernand Leger, But uh, Murphy brought a certain style to his soundies that uh, I think in the long run may have been a little ambitious and a little incompatible with um, turning out 431 films a year.
0: But would we have any evidence of Bessie Smith's performances if he hadn't shot her?
2: Not to my knowledge, not to my knowledge. That's no, kind are of true? shocking
0: since she's one of the greatest singers of the 20th century.
2: Well, that's indicative, I think, of how valuable the Black Cast soundies are because there were so few channels for Black performers to appear on film. Uh, Hollywood in the 1940s, in fact, was using fewer black performers. They were writing in fewer black characters because there was real pressure on Hollywood to reform the way they were presenting black people. And Hollywood was basically saying, okay, we'll just leave them out.
0: In fact, we did a show on uh, something similar and uh, one of the, uh, the, the key uh, stars at the time wound up moving to Europe to maintain her career. And who was that? Now, I'm suddenly blanking, <laughs> but, uh,
2: of
0: course. <laughs> you know, there's only so many things that come to, into my brain at any given time. But uh, I do remember ha- ha- telling that story where she had been uh, discovered, you uh, know, uh, during filming here and then uh, became something of MGM signed her as uh, its first black performer. Uh, and then uh, she didn't really have a career uh, in now, the. Now, are you
2: thinking? Are you thinking of Nina May McKinney? Yes. Okay. Well, I will say that the Film Forum just recently did a series on her. Yes, which, um, and that's I was what glad the, to attend.
0: Yes, and that's. <laughs> When we talked about her uh, Absolutely On this show Which is Leonard Lopate at large On WBAI New York 99.5 FM Streaming live At WBAI.org Just uh, quickly on On the Town Because we played a little bit uh, It actually was shot mostly Not in New York They just did some location things Right at the Brooklyn Navy Yard uh, uh, Washington Square Grant's Tomb Cleopatra's Needle Rockefeller Center um, But that we're just talking about seconds in a in a, a full length movie. Well, it's, it?
1: it's actually the whole the whole first musical number, which mm. is like seven eight minutes or something, is all New York footage, and it's designed to be shot, you know, as a location musical number bits and pieces hmm. think about the average arthur freed mgm musical it has these wonderful long takes where you can see fred astaire dancing and you can judy garland will be singing this is like bits and pieces it's a it's a montage unit mm-hmm. uh it's almost more like a reuben mamoulian musical uh, and then when they you know film the rest of the movie in hollywood the, the cutting and the staging is more like a uh, conventional uh, Arthur Freed uh, MGM musical. How big a problem to,
0: were the crowds of Frank Sinatra fans? Uh,
1: the crowds of Frank Sinatra fans uh, were problems, but, you know, uh, on the town, it's not the first time Frank Sinatra was uh, filming on the streets in New York because he appears in this movie called It Happened in Brooklyn, which mm-hmm. is a small MGM musical, smaller, made about three years earlier, But there's an entire musical number uh, shot on the Brooklyn Bridge where he sings this beautiful ode to the Brooklyn Bridge. And it's Mm -hmm. done in typical MGM style. And, you know, he's a he's a returning veteran and it's 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 the main number in the picture. But people have forgotten this. Even people who write about MGM musicals say, well, the first time, hey, any of these big MGM musicals shot in New York, that that was on the town. So, I would remind you, we're not showing it in this series. Look, look for that one number in It Happened in Brooklyn. You'll be surprised. Uh-huh.
0: Well, an unusual indie film in the series is The Little Fugitive, which was filmed in 1953. Uh, were the directors, Morris Engel and Ruth Orkin, influenced by European art films like Shoeshine?
1: Well, Morris Engel had a new camera. Morris Engel mm. was a street photographer. He had he the Cunningham congress.
0: combat camera which had been used during yep. the World War II.
1: Yep, yep. He, he had
0: four lenses. Like... Is uh how did that affect it?
1: Well, how many lenses do you do you actually need? You don't need too many. <laughs> um, but he did have this camera and then he he tweaked the camera and and for his next film he was able to record sound with it. Uh, for Engel, I think it was that those films were based on his new camera. In fact, he had this idea that he was trying to sell to someone to back that he would do a, like a series of documentary films using the new handheld camera. And they couldn't get anybody to, to buy that idea, but they said, self-finance uh, a picture, self-finance a picture. And people said, oh, do a little short. This is what Stanley Kubrick did. He got into the business by financing a couple of shorts. Uh, But Engel and Orkin said, no, 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 we don't want to go that way because, you know, that's a ghetto. We'll be in a corner. We have to make a feature length picture. So this is a feature length, you know, independent film, almost an experimental film without much dialogue. And they're trying to sell this picture. And People look at it and they say, what are we going to do with this film? This is, this is an impossible film. And then suddenly it gets picked up. And who picks it up? The same, the same distributor that's, that's distributing Bicycle Thieves.
0: And it was shot largely in Coney Island? Yes. Uh, so uh, uh, it had very little dialogue. Uh, and yet the film has a real strong impact. Uh, is it a reason why someone like Francois Truffaut admired it so much?
1: Yes, they liked it because they said this is this is an illustration of how you don't need fancy sets and important actors. You just need a good idea mm-hmm. and you need a visual imagination that will turn that idea into something alive and interesting on screen. Uh, they don't have any live sound recording in that film. If people you know, speak that all that dialogue is looped.
0: And he, I, I, Truffaut credited it as the beginning of the French New Wave movement. <laughs>
2: Yes, yes. I I also want to add that years ago I spoke with the photographer Helen Levitt. It Mm. was one of her favorite Um, films also.
0: Well, and she's truly great photographer of New York City's Mm -hmm. streets. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the the filmmakers planned from the beginning to make a short film. Uh, Was it uh, shown in theaters by itself or along with a full length film?
1: Well, they never made the short film. Uh, they said we're, we're going to make a feature film instead because a short film will just get washed away, even if we sell it to somebody. What will happen? Who, you know, who at the time remembered the two short films that Stanley Kubrick produced? Mm. I mean, people look at them now because they're Stanley Kubrick.
0: Well, he he shot his first one of his first movies on location in New York in 1955, Killer's Kiss.
1: Yes, yeah, and Killer's Kiss is a special focus in this book. I I try to talk about. Killer's Kiss and On the Waterfront, you know, in opposition because they were filmed simultaneously. They mm-hmm. both started shooting at the end of 53 and were kind of completed in 54. Although Kubrick, you know, spent another year editing it and trying to find a distributor. No, they in- represent two two ways of making a film. The Killer's Kiss is like the the indie way. I'm going to go get mm-hmm. borrow money from my parents you know, and and, and put it on my credit card and use deferments, and I'll make a movie and we'll see what happens. On the Waterfront is made by professionals. These are the best people in the business. They just don't like Hollywood. They're trying to invent another way to make professional films at their level outside of that system that they have rejected.
0: Because they were influenced by what was going on in Europe?
1: A lot of them were, yes. Uh, And if you talk to people like, you know, Jules Dassan, they'll say, well, we were all influenced by bicycle thieves Mm -hmm. and Italian neorealism. In fact, uh, a movie like House on 92nd Street was made before any of those films were shown here. And only Open City was made before the bulk of these New York exterior location movies. However, in, in memory, Open City gets mixed in with Bicycle Thieves and Shine and, and, and everything else. These two tendencies really developed simultaneously. No. There were some, critic, some critics at the time Pointed that out. Now,
0: uh, we don't have much time, but I want to talk about the other film that you'll be introducing, A Guilty Bystander from 1950, which you'll right. be introducing next Wednesday. Uh, I don't even know about this film, but uh, it, it involves an ex-cop named Max Thursday, played by Zachary Scott. Yes. <laughs> was was the name influenced by Joe Friday <laughs> of Dragnet uh, fame? It
1: could be. It, it, it could be. This is... This is a this is a homegrown New York noir. It was uh, directed and produced by a man named Joseph Lerner, who made several features in New York, including Mister Universe, which used to be on television all the time. Um, and it's it has money, you know, independent b- backing to it. He brings in you know Zachary Scott as the star. But it has to be different, right? So not only are the New York locations giving it uh, a different atmosphere, it's a lot of wonderful footage in Brooklyn and the Gowanus Canal. It's not it's not the picture postcard New York. But the hero is probably the most, you know, unreliable hero. Yeah, in he's, the a, film noir, he's an he's alcoholic. An alcoholic. Yeah, he's an alcoholic and he's he's his wife says, wake up, wake up, you know, his estranged wife, our little boy has been kidnapped, you have to find him. So he starts looking to find him, but every time he gets close, the bad guys offer him a drink and he goes, blotto.
0: <laughs> but also, and, it's interesting that the motion picture code forbade the depiction of the kidnapping of a minor child at the time. So how did they get around that?
1: Very carefully. very good you don't actually see the child kidnapped they just say he's kidnapped and and at the end he's there's a happy return so they managed they managed to finesse this um they were worried about other things in in guilty bystander but guilty bystander has just been uh restored by the british film institute
0: oh great
1: uh from a from a fine grain that somehow it was sent to england otherwise we'd been looking at nothing but beaten up Sixteen millimeter prints for years. Now
0: we're pretty much out of time. But uh, a a reminder that my guests have been Richard Kozarski and Susan Delson, uh, who have uh, uh, participating in a film form series called New York City's Movie Renaissance, 1945 to 1955, beginning tonight, uh, and, uh, with some incredible films to be shown. Susan, do you have anything you want to add before I say goodbye?
2: Uh, just that for people who don't know Soundies, this is a wonderful opportunity to, uh, learn what they're all about. They are such a, um, they were such a media flash in the pan, but they have so much history involved, and they are so good. They're really worth seeing and if you Susan, don't know them.
0: And Susan Delson's book is called Soundies and the Changing Image of a Black Americans on Screen, One Dime at a Time, from Indiana University Press. Richard Kazarsky's book is Keep 'Em in the East, Kazan, Kubrick, and the Postwar New York Renaissance from Columbia University Press, and he will be introducing the first film in the series tonight. Thank you both so much. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman, who prepared today's interview, and to live engineer Reggie Johnson and Leonard Lopez-at-Large's executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the great work that they do throughout the week. You can access our archive of over 600 past shows at WBAI.org. We're also on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you can also find links to our past interviews on uh, on at at uh, LeonardLopate at large.com. If you would like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at org. Before I go, I need to ask you to, to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI by going online to give to WBAI.org by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We especially need support right now to help pay for our transmitter. Uh, We need your help to keep this historic station the only one on the New York City radio dial that is 100% listener sponsored on the air. So why not make that call right now and make sure that this show and the station that brings it to you will be be here in the years to come. And one great way to show your support for what we do on Leonard Low Paid at Large is to become a sustaining member of what we call a BAI Buddy. BAI Buddies provide the station with a steady, stable source of support, something we need now more than ever, $10, $15, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. But however you choose to donate, what matters is that you join your fellow listeners who keep this alternative to corporate radio alive and well in New York City through their generosity. Again, the number to call to make your taxes. Tax-deductible contribution is 212-209-2950 or you can go online to give to wbaiorg and please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large and, and thank you very much. We're off for the next few days but I hope you can join us again on Tuesday for my last show with Leonard Lopate at Large executive producer Jesse Lent who's moving to Europe to concentrate full-time on his other career as a musician and producer. Jesse and I will look back on the highs and lows of the past few years of the show. And we'll also be joined by Kaziah Glow, my new producer. You won't want to miss it. Have a great weekend.